From 90.7 WFAE, this is Newsworthy for Leap Day, Thursday, February 29, 2024. I'm Eric Thiel. Mecklenburg County employees will soon be required back in the office five days a week. Eli Portillo has details. The county's 6,000 employees have been in the office three days a week, and they're allowed to telework for the other two. That's in line with what many major employers have settled on post-pandemic. But county manager Dina DiOrio said in a message to workers this week that they need to report to the office five days a week starting July 1st. She said that the county is struggling with high turnover and that, quote, trust is hindered when we continue to operate apart too often. DiOrio wrote that while she knows employees might be disappointed by her decision and consider looking for other jobs, she hopes they'll consider other benefits the county provides, such as a 5% 401k match and 13 paid holidays. Eli Portillo, WFAE News. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg School Board this week approved a $16.5 million contract to start converting its payroll system. But officials say the district's 19,000 employees will not see a disaster like the one that recently played out in Gaston County. And Doss Helms reports. School districts across North Carolina are replacing outdated business and payroll systems. But when Gaston County Schools took the lead two years ago, it was a mess. The district's 5,000 employees faced missing and inaccurate paychecks, incorrect retirement payments, and other problems that dragged on for more than a year. CMS will convert to Oracle Cloud, the same system Gaston is using. But Chief Financial Officer Kelly Klutz says CMS won't make the same mistakes. For one, CMS is using a different company, AST, to handle the conversion. And Klutz says CMS had one big demand. Go slow and do this right. That means a lot of time getting the new system ready, then running the new and old systems in tandem for almost three years until they're virtually error-free. CMS hopes to fully convert to Oracle in January of 2027. This district will not go live until we know it is completely accurate. This summer, employees will start using a new platform to report their time. But CMS will still use the current payroll system for now, which Klutz says doesn't work well and sunsets in 2027. We have difficulties with our payroll because of our system is not modern. And there's lots of room for error when you are operating on a 23-year-old system. The $16.5 million contract is the district's first installment. Over four years, CMS expects to spend $33 million on the conversion. Ann Doss-Helms, WFAE News. The Carolina Panthers' new coach and general manager are in Indianapolis this week for the NFL Combine, where college players preparing for the draft show off their skills and measurables to teams. Teams also get a chance to interview individual players. Panthers GM Dan Morgan described exactly what the team is looking for. We need some more playmakers. You know, obviously we have Adam Thielen, Mingo, but we got to add some more receivers, some more depth and competition in that room right now. And, um, you know, we just got to get guys that can make plays. You know, that's that's really what we're, you know, looking at in, in the draft or whether free agency. Coming off a dismal 2-15 and 15 season, the Panthers need help at several spots on the roster and have a few key free agents of their own they'd like to keep, including Brian Burns, Derek Brown, and Frankie Louvu. Activities at the Combine continue through Monday. There's a new craft beer in Charlotte with a different twist. Charlotte Water, Town Brewing, and a water technology company called Xylem are introducing Renew Brew, the first beer in the Carolinas brewed with QC water, a recycled water. Renew Brew is a limited edition pale ale and first debuted at this month's Queen City Brewers Festival, 
where it won Best in Show during a blind tasting competition. Renew Brew is a demonstration project and cannot be sold. It's only available via tasting events and demonstrations. Charlotte Water provided the source water from the McDowell Wastewater Treatment Plant, chosen for its award-winning treatment process. Though Renew Brew is the first demonstration project of its kind in the Carolinas, similar recycled water beers have been used in other areas of the United States. The public can sample Renew Brew at an April 20th event at Town Brewing. Even though construction has already started, officials in Mooresville will hold a ceremonial groundbreaking event this afternoon for the so-called East-West Connector. The Charlotte Observer reports the first phase of the project runs from Langtree Road off I-77 to Highway 115. It's intended to take some pressure off the city's only other east-west route, Highway 150, and is expected to take three years to finish. The overall plan calls for eventually connecting Highway 152 with I-77. Charlotte is bringing back penalties for drinking alcohol in public, but you'll soon be able to drink on the sidewalk, as long as it's in Plaza Midwood. That's where the city's first social district is set to begin this weekend. Tony Messia of the Charlotte Ledger Business Newsletter joined our Marshall Terry for our segment, Bizworthy. Okay, Tony, so is it going to look like Mardi Gras in Plaza Midwood this weekend? Well, that's a good question, Marshall. Probably a lot of people have that on their mind. You know, is this first social district that Charlotte is creating, is it going to lead to, you know, people spilling out into the streets and, you know, big uh, cups of beer? Uh, The answer, I think, is going to be no. The intention on this social district, it's been in the works for a while. This is a law that the General Assembly passed about two and a half years ago, allowing these open drinking zones to exist. And it's been done in dozens of cities and towns uh, across North Carolina since then. The reason that it's not going to be a whole bunch of people just drinking in the streets is because the key on this social district is a 16-ounce stainless steel reusable cup. If you don't have the cup, You can't legally drink on the streets, and they're limiting the supply of cups initially, and it's uh, supposed to roll out starting this weekend with about 12 bars and restaurants, so it's sort of a limited, slow rollout is the way it's being envisioned. The Ledger co-hosted a social district preview event Tuesday night in Plaza Midwood, uh, where business owners and residents shared their thoughts about what's coming. What did you hear? Well, they want to make sure that people know that, yeah, the intention is not to turn Central Avenue into Bourbon Street. The intention is to get more people sort of actively walking through this mile-long social district. It goes along Central Avenue, sort of shoots off toward Chantilly and around the Central Business District. And they're saying that it could just encourage people to get a drink at a bar, maybe go into a retail shop, use the sidewalks more. You can sort of experience Plaza Midwood as more of a destination. Well, switching over now to changes for Mecklenburg County employees. Uh, The county is ordering employees to return to the office five days a week. What's the reasoning here and uh, how are workers reacting? Yes, County Manager Dina DiOrio sent a memo this week to county employees saying that they had been on a back to the office three days a week kind of schedule, but they really need to be back five days a week. She cited reduced levels of customer service, a lack of cohesiveness and collaboration with people uh, working from home. And she said there's also been higher turnover. You know, as far as what workers are thinking, I think there've been a few social media posts suggesting that this is gonna decrease morale, but the county manager says that this is something that needs to be done. The county manager did say she knew that some of the employees would be disappointed in that decision and might consider whether they wanted to stay employed uh, with the county. 
the unemployment rate now is fairly low. Workers do have a lot of choices, but this is something really that all uh, employers are facing in one way or another. Let's end this week on an update to a series of stories uh, the Ledger has had, taking a closer look at how Atrium Health operates with its status as a local government entity. You report your coverage has now gotten the eyes of lawmakers. Uh, What are they saying? Three key lawmakers on health panels in the North Carolina House and North Carolina Senate told the Ledger and North Carolina Health News this week that they would like to look at potential changes to North Carolina's law on hospital authorities. Atrium is actually a hospital authority under North Carolina law, which gives it advantages such as additional tax breaks, certain antitrust advantages to grow. Uh, They're supposed to follow open records and meetings laws. Some critics say they don't fully do that. So these legislators are saying we might need to take a look at this because this law was created decades ago and might not serve the current condition because it didn't contemplate that there would be multi-billion dollar, multi-state healthcare entities like Atrium. Now, what is Atrium saying about this latest update? Atrium says it absolutely follows the current law. It says it's very deeply rooted in the communities that it serves, giving free care, uh, making sure that people who can't pay are treated. And Atrium also says that communities are better because Atrium is there taking care of people. All right, Tony, thank you. Thanks, Marshall. That's Tony Messia of the Charlotte Ledger Business Newsletter. Support for BizWorthy comes from the Original Mattress Factory and Sharon View Federal Credit Union. Former President Donald Trump owed his win this past weekend in the South Carolina primary over former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to the Republican Party base. Exit polls showed Trump appealed more to the most conservative voters, white men, evangelicals, and voters without college degrees. All of those groups represent core voters within today's Republican Party. But just a few decades ago, they were a minority in the GOP. The new narrative podcast Landslide, which WFAE is a partner in, examines the shift within the GOP that led to today's party. The latest episode is out today, and creator and host Ben Bradford tells Marshall Terry how that flip happened. Hey, Ben. Hey, Marshall. Uh, So take us back to 1976. Uh, Some of these same groups of voters that just delivered Trump his win in South Carolina were gaining more influence within the Republican Party. How was that viewed at the time? The idea of conservatives taking control of the Republican Party, and a lot of them from the kind of demographics that you mentioned, was viewed as a disaster. A popular consensus, and and this is not an exaggeration, was that it would be the party's death knell. And you start the second episode of Landslide with a pretty striking montage uh, to that effect. Yeah, uh, we go with a roundup of news footage and uh, speech excerpts that demonstrate what people thought was this danger facing the GOP. Let's play it. Support for the Republican Party has dropped to an all-time low of 18% of the electorate. There have been warnings from Republican leaders that the party might not survive its present wrangling. It seems hard to believe now, but in the mid-1970s, the Republican Party looked on the verge of self-destruction. More and more analysts are predicting the Republicans will go the way of the Whigs. It sounds like an epic misfire of prognostication, but even the party's head, Republican National Chairwoman Mary Louise Smith, echoed the predictions of doom. Unless you and I get together and work for this party, we may have no party at all. Uh, That's the very opening of the new episode of Landslide. Um, Ben, unpack why this was the view. 
Well, you have to understand that there was a growing block of conservatives in the Republican Party, um, and they wanted to nominate a conservative presidential candidate. But the general consensus of the time was that ideological candidates could not win in American politics. And you know there was good reason to think that. There were these two recent examples. In 1964, the conservative Senator Barry Goldwater had gotten the Republican nomination, and uh, he got crushed by Lyndon Johnson. And then in 1972, the liberal Senator George McGovern had gotten the Democratic nomination, and he got crushed by Richard Nixon. So everyone kind of thinks, Okay, well, this is what happens when a hard right or hard left candidate runs a hard right or hard left campaign. You said conservatives were a growing faction. Uh, why was that? Yeah, so in large part, that was because Goldwater and then Nixon had made a key part of their campaign strategies luring over conservative Democrats, especially in the South, who opposed civil rights. You're talking about what's called the Southern strategy. Yeah, that's right. And so Nixon did this very successfully where he won over a lot of segregationist Democrats, but he also still kept more centrist voters at the same time. But then you have Watergate, and so Nixon is out. And a lot of those centrist Republicans are thinking of packing their bags from the party too. And that leaves conservatives, a lot of them from the kind of demographics that form the core of today's GOP. And now they're a much bigger part of the base. It gives them more power and this sort of power struggle ensues within the party. Um, and I should say that conservatives are still at this point not a majority uh, within the party or within the country, and they need to convince others. And so a big part of what we're looking at in this episode is how their preferred candidate, Ronald Reagan, starts doing that. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thank you. The podcast is Landslide. Ben Bradford is the host and creator. It's a production of Nuance Tales and WFAE, distributed by the NPR Network. And for Thursday, February 29th, that's Newsworthy. I'm Eric Thiel.